Way City Church, located in Woodbridge, Virginia, is led by Pastor Marlon Yearwood and exists to reach the lost and disciple the believer. So, you know, I thought that we were done with, um, with spiritual warfare and, and prayer last week, but I was wrong. Um, so we're going to continue this week speaking about spiritual warfare and prayer. Um, and we're going to be speaking today about the, the armor of God, and we're going to be in the book of Ephesians. So some scholars call the book of Ephesians, they call this the, the Grand Canyon of the New Testament. The Grand Canyon of the New Testament, it is very rich. We have six rich chapters in this book, in the book of Ephesians. And it covers uh, God's plan of salvation, and it highlights the depths and height and width and length of God's love toward us. Paul went to Ephesus on one of his uh, missionary journeys and spent, uh, some believe, between two and three years there in Ephesus. And the book of Ephesians can be divided into two parts. The, the first part, chapters 1 through 3, is doctrinal. Okay, so it can be divided into two parts. The first part, chapters 1, 2, and 3, is doctrinal. And then the second part, chapters 4, 5, and 6, is practical. And this, um, this style or, or format of, of writing is very Pauline in nature, meaning um, Paul's writings often consist of this kind of structure. Uh, Romans is a great example of that as well. So the first section is doctrine and then practical. So in chapters 1 through 3, Paul's laying the foundation and he's presenting this new society, a.k.a. the church. And he speaks of what God's plan is for the church and how it is supposed to work. What God's plan is for the church and how the church is supposed to work. And then we get to chapters 4 through 6, and Paul kicks off his entry into the practical by using his very famous word, therefore. Therefore. And he's saying, based on what I've taught you so far, which would be the first half of the book, the first three chapters, and by the way, the Bible was not written in chapter and, and verse, uh, if you didn't know that. That came, that came later. Um, for us to more easily manage the scriptures um, and locate it. So, he says, therefore, based on all that I have taught you, he says, now this. We're going from doctrine, first three chapters, to the do's, chapters 4, 5, and 6. And that's really the goal of every single sermon, that you would first be taught, that you would gain understanding, and then that you would take action. He says, I therefore beseech you in the new King James. He says, therefore I beseech you. And the ESV says, I, I urge you. Therefore I urge you now. So this is what I've taught you and now this is how you should live, is what he's saying. Take what you know and walk in it. And again, Romans is a good example of this as well. Romans 12.1, before that he's speaking of um, the doctrines of the church, and in Romans 12 he says, I therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, beseech you that you would present yourselves to God a living sacrifice. Right? He says, therefore, based on what I have taught you so far, now, present your body, which is reasonable, 
as a living sacrifice unto God. So in Ephesians, however, after we have the doctrinal section and the therefore section, Paul adds the, the finally section in Ephesians chapter 6, and that's where we will begin and dwell today. We're beginning at the end. So the, the final words of any individual and the last thing that a person has to say, I think we could reasonably assume is the most important thing or the thing that they want the hearer to remember most of all. This is the thing they want you to know. And the things that are shared are usually the things that are full within their heart of the person that's releasing you. And out of everything that person may have taught you before, this is what they choose to leave with you. So today we're in Ephesians chapter 6 and we will look at the final words that Paul wanted the church that was gathered in Ephesus to know. Let's go. Ephesians 6 verses 10 through 18. Ephesians chapter 6 verses 10 through 18. Finally, my brethren, Finally, my brethren, be strong in the Lord and in the power of His might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this age, against spiritual hosts of wickedness in the heavenly places. Verse 13, again his therefore, Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day, and having done all to stand, stand therefore, having girded your waist with truth, having put on the breastplate of righteousness, and having shod your feet with the preparation of the gospel of peace. Above all, taking the shield of faith, which, which you will be able to quench all the fiery darts of the wicked one, and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God, praying always with all prayer and supplication in the Spirit, being watchful to this end with all perseverance and supplication for all the saints. And you can, and you can say that, um, that a part of the, the armor, it's often not included, but you can add prayer as a part of this armor. And finally, verse 18, praying always with all prayer and supplication in the Spirit, being watchful to this end, with all perseverance and supplication for all the saints. So, verse 10, finally, so, so Paul now introduces the concept of spiritual warfare to the church at Ephesus. He wants them to know this. He needs them to know this. And then the famous, therefore, again. He's saying, because you know this, that it's a spiritual battle, that we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers and spiritual hosts of wickedness in the heavenly places, 
against the rulers of the darkness of this age. Because you know this, he says, now, this is what you're supposed to do. Put on this armor. And he says, put on not just some armor, but he says, put on the whole armor. The whole armor of God. But the, the armor that he's speaking about is not physical because the battle is not physical. So he's not speaking about physical armor. But this battle is spiritual, so he's speaking about spiritual armor that needs to be applied. Finally. And then verse 11, he says, put on. Put on. This is something that you need to do. This armor is not just automatically applied to you at conversion. I'm going to say that again. This armor is not just automatically applied to you at conversion. But he says, put this on. Access, let me make this clear, access to this armor has been granted to you at conversion. You have access to this. But it's not necessarily on you. You're not clothed with this. So he says, he's, he's teaching, this is discipleship. He's saying, now put on this armor. Just like you put on your clothes in the morning. Put it on, spiritually speaking. The whole armor of God. Not just some of it again, or a part of it, but the whole armor of God. They say that a chain is only as strong as its weakest link. And that's true. And this armor only works and covers you when it is fully applied. No piece is missing. Fully applied. 1 Corinthians 10, 12 says, Therefore let him who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. Do you think that you stand this morning? Do you think that you are standing this morning? In order to stand, Ephesians 6, 11 says, you must gird your waist with truth. Put on the breastplate of righteousness, shed your feet with the preparation of the gospel of peace, etc. If you, if you think that you stand, this must be judged based on Ephesians chapter 6. Don't just think, I'm standing. Don't deceive yourselves. The only way that you're standing is if you have the armor of God applied to you, according to Ephesians 6 and verse 11. Verse 11 also tells us that you cannot stand against the wiles of the devil with any of the pieces of this armor missing. If you want to stand against the wiles of the devil, then this armor must be fully applied in order for you to be able to stand against his wiles. And I believe that we must have our anger, our aggression, our strength, and our focus directed at the right target. At the right target. Wrestling against flesh and blood, my friends, is in vain. 
wrestling against flesh and blood is in vain. You're dealing with the symptoms. And as long as the symptoms are attached to a root and are being fed, they will always come back, even if they go away for a season. But it will always come back. Smoke is a symptom, right? But the source is fire. And imagine if instead of we had uh, firefighters, we had uh, smoke fighters. And they came to your home and they had a, had a vacuum that sucked up all the smoke. It would be a never-ending task. A very laborsome, wearisome work. They're just dealing with the symptoms, right? They must put out the fire and the smoke will cease. So we as believers, we're not called to, to wrestle against flesh and blood. We're not called to wrestle against people. But we're called to take our fight into the spiritual arena. For we are spiritual people. We're called to wrestle and to go to war spiritually speaking. And I would say this, you know, I would say our, our fight shouldn't even be, you know, 50% you know, um, in the spirit realm and 50% in the natural. The, the, the root causes are spiritual. So I would say, man, we do most of our work in prayer. The majority, 78% of it in prayer. 20, 30% in the natural. But it's not even an equal, it's the fight is dealt with in prayer first and yes, Work should be done in the natural, but very little compared to what we do in prayer. Amen? Amen. I, you know, I can, I can see, you know, especially the, the season that we're in right now, you know, I, a lot of work is being done in the natural. And you guys know that I believe in, in, in speaking against injustice and... and, and standing up and fighting, I believe that, you know that. But the majority of our work should be done in the spirit and in prayer. And for, and for many Christians, I believe like 95% of their work is done in the natural. They're trying to deal with smoke. So, so should work be done in the natural? Absolutely. But I'm saying the majority of our work as spiritual people should be done spiritually speaking because we understand that this wrestle is not, that this battle is not natural. But we're wrestling against spiritual powers and spiritual beings. We understand that. Our eyes have been opened. So we must fight in that way. Amen? Amen. In verse 14, it says, the, the, the evil day, the evil day is is coming to all. The evil day is, it's coming. I want you to understand that the evil day is coming. It is coming. If it hasn't come already in your life, it is coming. And again, when it comes, the only way to stand is for you to equip yourself with the entire armor 
of God. The, the people of God are never caught off guard. The Bible tells us, this is coming, the Bible tells us what to expect. We're never caught off guard. But we are to be prepared. This armor, we put it on and we never take it off. This is not the kind of armor that we take off before we go to bed. But we remain prepared and we remain aware. The, the first piece of this armor is truth. The Bible says. And we'll probably spend a few weeks going over the armor of God because today I just want to focus on the, on the truth part. But the first piece of armor, it goes around your waist, which is, you could say, the, the center of the body. We often speak about below the waist and above the waist, the waist being the reference point. And the first piece of armor is truth, and it's the belt of truth. And this is the, the belt is where many of the other pieces of, of armor hang on the belt. And the, the belt is the, is the foundation. Truth is the foundation for what we believe and what we even know about the other pieces of the armor. Truth. You must be centered first and foremost with the truth. Amen? Truth. Daniel 8.12, briefly, says, Because of transgression, an army was given over to the horn to oppose the daily sacrifices, and he cast truth down to the ground. He did all this and prospered. Because of transgression, an army was given over to the horn to oppose the daily sacrifices, and he cast truth to the ground. He did all this and prospered. And this is speaking about the, the war against truth. And this is, this is Satan's work, and this is his agenda, to, to distort truth to cast truth down to the ground. Truth. Why are we, as, as Christians, why are we the most persecuted group in the world? Why? Because it's spiritual. What we have is effective and powerful. And, and Satan, he... He knows it, and he's terrified of the believer that really knows who he is in Christ. He's terrified of that individual. So I want to I wanna give you guys um, uh, some, some truth and some, um, yeah, some, some truth, some facts as well. But we understand that, that fulfilled prophecy confirm the divine origin of the Bible. When we're speaking of 
of truth, I want to give you guys um, some, some, some tangible things that we can uh, hold on to um, that can encourage us uh, in our faith or, or remind us that God's word is true. So, fulfilled prophecies confirm the divine origin of the Bible. Ful- fulfilled prophecy states the Bible from every, separates the Bible from every other book. Fulfilled prophecy separates this book from every single other book. Fulfilled prophecy. And no other religious text in the world can lay claim to a fulfilled prophecy. Hundreds of prophecies are given in the Old Testament and not a single one has failed. For example, in Isaiah 44, 18, 45, Isaiah 44, 18 to 45, 13, the prophet Isaiah prophesied that God would raise up a ruler named Cyrus. You guys know that name to rebuild the city of Jerusalem. And what happened? A few hundred years later, Cyrus, king of Persia, decreed to have the city of Jerusalem built. In Daniel, chapter 7, verse 6, and Daniel 8, 21, and verse 22, Daniel prophesied the swift rise of the Greek empire under Alexander the Great. You guys know that name. He prophesied the, the, the swift rise of Alexander the Great and the division of his empire into four parts after his death. He prophesied this. Over 200 years later, guess what? Alexander the Great conquered much of the known world, and after his death, his empire was divided among his generals into four parts. Though, as Daniel foretold, none ruled with the strength of Alexander, but it happened just as Daniel had prophesied. Is that encouraging? The Old Testament also makes numerous prophecies concerning the Messiah's first coming, and all were fulfilled. For example, Isaiah 7 and verse 14 predicts that the Messiah would be born of a virgin. And some 700 years later, the Gospel writer Matthew records that this prophecy was fulfilled in the virgin birth of Jesus. Matthew 1, 18 through 23. Amen? The prophet Micah foretold in Micah 5, 2 that the Messiah would be born in Bethlehem. And over 700 years later, again records the fulfillment of this very prophecy in Jesus, who was born in Bethlehem. Matthew chapter 2, verses 1 through 6, confirms that. In Isaiah 53, the prophet Isaiah foretold of the Messiah as the suffering servant who makes atonement for lost humanity. And all four Gospels record the substitutionary death on the cross by Jesus to atone for the sins of the world. Another interesting messianic text is Psalm 22. When Jesus was dying on the cross, he cried out with a loud voice quoting Psalm 22.1, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani. And Psalm 22.7 and 8 states, all those who see me ridicule me, they shoot me, they shoot out the lip, they shake the head, saying he trusted in the Lord 
let him rescue him, let him deliver him, since he delights in him. Interestingly, this is what the chief priests and scribes and elders said about Jesus while he was on the cross. Matthew 27, 39 through 43. The same words. The psalm continues in verses 14 and 15, describing the suffering and thirst of the Messiah. And the Gospels record that Jesus, as you know, he stated, I thirst while on the cross in fulfillment of this prophecy in Psalm 22. And that was fulfilled in John 19, 28. So we see Psalm 22 and John 19 written in two completely different periods of time. Psalm 22, 16 through 18 states, They pierced my hands and my feet. I can count all my bones. They look and stare at me. They divide my garments among them. And for my clothing they cast lots. Matthew 27, 35 records that the soldiers fulfilled this prophecy and we can keep on going. Lastly, the phrase in verse 16, they pierced my hands and my feet. The last point I'm going to make before we move on here. They pierced my hands and my feet. It was written 1,000 years before Christ, but by, by, before a man even, even knew. This was, this was before the crucifixion was even invented. They pierced my hands and my feet 1,000 years before Christ, before he came in the flesh. 1,000 years before Christ came in the flesh, that was written by a man who had never witnessed the crucifixion because it had never been invented as of yet. So the, the consistent message of the Bible confirms the divine origin of the Bible. The consistent message confirms the divine origin. The consistency of the biblical record is astonishing when you take a few things into, when you take note of a few things. The Bible was written in three different languages, as we know, Hebrew, Aramaic, and Greek. The Bible was written in three different languages, Hebrew, Aramaic, and Greek. It was written over three different continents. It was written in Asia, Europe, and Africa. So three different languages, three different continents. And the Bible was written by approximately 40 different authors over a span of 1,500 years. So you have 40 different authors over a span of 1,500 years written over three different continents in three different languages. And many of these people never even met each other, the majority of these writers. But yet it, but yet it tells the same story and doesn't contradict itself. Because it's truth. 
And it's truth that comes from God. Amen? And it tells the same story. Woven together by the Creator for us. I'm finally going to say this because none of us question Alexander the Great. We, we read of him and, um, and no one questions anything. But the earliest biography of Alexander the Great was written 400 years after his death. The earliest was written 400 years after his death. The earliest account of Jesus, some believe, was 1 Corinthians 15, was written five years. Five years after his death, and the earliest gospel being Mark, was written within 30 years after his death. You have to understand, that is amazing. Yeah. That is unheard of, and that is amazing. So this is truth. It's been tried, it's been tested, and it's been proven to be true. And you can't tear this thing apart, I'm telling you. So truth is that which is consistent with the mind, will, character, glory, and being of God. Truth is that which is consistent with the mind, character, glory, and being of God. Now, there's a difference between facts and truth. Facts are subject to change. The truth is not. Facts are subject to change. The truth does not. It is a fact that no one has ever seen God in all his fullness. But it is the truth that he exists. It is a fact that there is no cure for AIDS that man has discovered. It is the truth that God has healed many with this condition. I think I've shared with you before about a friend who I went to uh, Bible college with who, who had this. And he was healed. And when he shared the story with me, not to get off topic, um, but he told me, this is what he shared with me. He said the, the Holy Spirit told him to every single day for several months to meditate upon healing scriptures in the Bible. This is his own testimony, what he shared with me. I'm just repeating back to you. And he said for, for six months, day and night, he just meditated upon healing scriptures. And he said, and it disappeared from his body. So, he heals. Amen. It's a fact that the human body cannot survive more, more than a week without water. Average three to four days. Three weeks without food. It's the truth that Jesus fasted in the wilderness for 40 days and 40 nights. And by the way, Moses did the same thing. Just in case you say, well, that was Jesus. Moses did the same thing. It's the truth. It's a fact that after being dead for four days, you don't just uh, get up and 
walk. It is the truth that it happened with Lazarus. It's a fact that a woman cannot get pregnant without the use of a man. It is the truth that Mary was immaculately conceived. It is the truth. Amen? In John 18, 33 through 37. Let me read this real quick. Then Pilate entered the praetorium again, called Jesus, and said to him, Are you the king of the Jews? Jesus answered him, Are you speaking for yourself about this, or did others tell you this concerning me? Pilate answered, Am I a Jew? Your own nation and the chief priests have delivered you to me. What have you done? Jesus answered, My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would fight, so that I should not be delivered to the Jews. But now my kingdom is not from here. Pilate therefore said to him, Are you a king then? Jesus answered, You say rightly that I am a king. For this cause I was born. And for this cause I have come into the world that I should bear witness to the truth. For this cause I was born, and for this cause I have come into the world, that I should bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth hears my voice. Pilate said to him, what is truth? And when he had said this, he went out again to the Jews and said to them, I find no fault in him at all. We're speaking about truth. This is a part of the, the armor. This is the first piece of the armor. The belt of truth will keep you centered, will keep you balanced. Truth. Jesus said, for this reason I was born, and for this I came into the world to testify to the truth. Where does one testify? Let me ask you guys, where does one testify? Usually, in the court. Amen. One testifies in the courtroom. And what goes on in a courtroom? A trial. Excellent. And Jesus came to testify. And what was on trial? Jesus was on trial. Truth. The truth was on trial. The, the truth was on trial. The truth was. And Jesus was on the witness stand. And he is the only one, he is the only one that he needed to be in agreement with. Just him and his father. 
he was in, he was in agreement with his father and with himself and and truth my friends is not a democracy and it's not based on votes or popularity it's not and it never will be Jesus said I tell you the truth over 75 times and in the book of John alone he says truly truly more than 25 times he says that John 1 17 for the law was given through Moses but grace and truth came through Jesus Christ John 14 and verse 6 Jesus said to him I am the way the truth and the life no one comes to the Father except through me John 17 and 17 sanctify them by your truth your word is truth John 4 24 God is spirit and those who worship him must worship him in in spirit and in truth John 8 and verse 32 and you shall know the truth and the truth shall set you free the truth and it shall set you free from from what 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 makes us captive usually in the in the physical sense what what binds us up what puts us in in prison in the physical world usually it's laws it's the law and when we break it we transgress against it we find ourselves captive and Jesus came to set the captives free and grace and truth the the law he said came through Moses but grace and truth came through Jesus Christ so the law never gave or, or offered truth to any generation it, 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 it convicted but it never offered freedom or a solution but it found you guilty that's what the law did but we've been redeemed amen in Christ from the law of sin and death and we are now free in him we are free Jesus speaks about the Spirit in John 14 and John 16 as the, as the Spirit of truth who will lead you and guide you as the, as, as the helper. And the Spirit comes to reveal to us this truth and to cause us to walk in freedom. That is a part of the, of the role of the Holy Spirit, of the Spirit of God. 1 Timothy 2.4 speaks about God desires that all men be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth and we can keep on going but we need the truth this is what we need and we need to and we need to fasten it we need to hold tight to it we need to honor it and respect it walk in it proclaim it 
the truth. We are children of the light. We are children of the truth. And we must represent it. And represent it well. As I get ready to, to close here, I want you to think of Adam and Eve in the garden. And when they only had God's voice, God's voice of truth, it was very easy for them to accept it and to believe it and to know it. But what does Satan do? He introduces to you another voice. Now all of a sudden, Eve's in the garden and now she's heard something else. And let me say this too for many of our you know, uh, college students in America. Some of the things they're being taught. It's another voice. And that's what Satan does. He he cannot destroy the truth. Jesus is the truth. He, he cannot. But he will do his best to present another voice. And not just one, but many other voices. And he doesn't care which other voice you listen to, just as long as you don't listen to the right one. So he will introduce, as he did to Eve, another voice. Did God say is that what he meant? How about this? And you're like, ah, I never heard that before. And you begin to entertain these thoughts. So that's how he works. Picture yourself in, in the stands. At a game. And the field is empty. There's no one there. And you can see clearly. Now, if there, was, if there was one man on that field, would you be able to see him? You, you have your glasses, your contacts, binoculars, whatever you need, okay? You can use them, right? So you're in the stands, right? There's one guy on the field. He has a white T-shirt on. In black writing, on the front and the back, it says, Truth. Can you see him? Yes. Use the binoculars if you have to. You can see him. It says truth on his shirt. This is what Satan does. He cannot mess with the truth. On that field, he will bring out 1,000 other individuals with white t-shirts on that have black writing that say different things. Now find the truth. It's still there. It's still truth. But now you're distracted. And this is what Satan does. He cannot put his hands on Jesus. He cannot put his hand on the word. You get what I'm saying? He can't. But he'll present other voices, yeah, and alternatives to distract you. So as I conclude here, the, the Bible is 
true. It's true. Some reasons, prophecies fulfilled. Eyewitness accounts and testimonies. Early recorded manuscripts over the years. And listen, and there are millions of testimonies of people's lives that have been transformed by this God and by this Word. Millions of lives. I want to remind you today and encourage you to be committed to the truth of God's Word. To be committed to truth. For you shall know the truth and the truth shall set you free. The fact that truth is in the world doesn't automatically mean that people are walking in freedom. It's the truth that you know that sets you free. It's the truth that you know. Whatever you, wherever you lack understanding and you don't have truth in the area, you will be in bondage in the area. You shall know the truth and the truth shall set you free. It's the truth that you know that will cause you to walk in freedom. So this is the first piece of, of the armor that we spoke about today, the belt of truth. Pilate asked Jesus, what is truth? And I say to you, what is truth? I'm not asking you what is your truth, but what is truth? Absolutely. It's God's word. Amen. We'd love to hear from you. Visit us at thewaycitychurch.org.